morning, everyone. <clears throat> Good to see, see everyone out this morning. Someone once said, I would rather see a sermon than hear one any day. And as I've been preparing for this message um, about the topic of future events and the return of our Lord, you know, there's a lot of different viewpoints on that. It's a complicated subject. <clears throat> there's whole books written on it. And I was thinking, Lord, you said you're coming quickly. If you'd like to come this morning before I speak, uh, that, that would be wonderful. <laughs> and we could see it right before. And you know, that could happen at any time. We, we may not finish this meeting, and the Lord could come back for us. So this morning, we are going to talk about the Lord's coming, something that could happen at any time. One of the most exciting truths revealed in scripture, and a question that has been on people's mind for really centuries, well, when is that going to happen? When is he coming back? And the Lord was very clear in Matthew 24, he says, of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. In spite of that, there are some who say, well, yeah, we don't know the day, we don't know the hour, but I'll tell you the year. And uh, there is a fellow who uh, attempted that. Uh, if we can get our slide working here. There. The, the drama builds as we wait for this. Uh, and uh, is this on? Oh, we've blacked out. Well, the Lord, there we are. There he is. Uh, Edgar Weisnott, a former NASA engineer and uh, Bible student, uh, claimed that he knew, he knew when the Lord was coming back. Uh, he wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why the Lord Will Hapture, uh, the Rapture Will Occur in 1988. He said, only if the Bible is in error am I wrong. And I say that to every preacher in town. Wow. That is a pretty bold statement. Uh, so when the predicted rapture did not occur, uh, he followed up with some other books. Uh, the Lord is returning in 1989, uh, 1993, 1994. Uh, those books didn't sell very well. <laughs> um, and it's interesting, one of, the, you know, one of the elders said, in light of the, of the uh, 49ers, miracle journey to the NFC championships that there might be a new book 49 reasons why the Lord will return in 2049 uh, but they didn't make the uh, they didn't make the Super Bowl so maybe that book won't come out um, you know seriously um, the problem with these kind of predictions is that people believe them and they can end up taking radical action uh, sell their homes, quit their job, perhaps even leave their families and head for the hills. But not only that, it, it, it leaves a wrong impression on the public. Uh, it undermines confidence in the Bible. Uh, so it's important for us to know what Scripture teaches regarding end-time events. Uh, and so that's one of the reasons why we chose to study through the book of Revelation and here's a chart that we've kind of uh, seen as a basis uh, for the, that timeline of Christ's return. Uh, 
We know scripture teaches this present church age is going to end with the rapture of the church. That's something that we look forward to with great hope and expectation. But we also realize there are godly men who are on different sides of when that could occur. Uh, so this is a subject that we want to approach with humility uh, and graciousness and respect for those who may have other points of view. I think Paul said it well. He said in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I've been fully known. Uh, I appreciated the example of our, our brother Bill McDonald. When he was having a, a fairly uh, uh, robust discussion with a brother about a doctrinal issue, he said, well, it's obvious we, dis we disagree on this, and when we get to heaven, <clears throat> one of us will be wrong, and maybe it'll be me. <laughs> and so he, he, I just appreciated his, his attitude about that. We, we want to be firm in our faith, uh, but we recognize there are others who may have different points of view. We don't want views on future events and the Lord's coming to be a source of, of division or strife or a breakup in fellowship, which has actually happened. If you study the history of uh, eschatology, the, the um, study of future events, it has caused rifts in fellowship, and, and we obviously don't want that to happen. So what we want to try to do this morning is look at some various views on the return of the Lord, uh, his, the rapture, his coming to reign, and, and then share with you what the elders feel the scripture teaches um, on those events to come. Uh, to do that, this message is necessarily going to be a little bit more doctrinal uh, in nature, and that's, that's the reason for, for the handouts you have. There's, there's so much information about this topic we don't have time to cover it all, uh, so we're going to refer to the handouts uh, from time to time. Uh, like the Bereans, we want to examine the scriptures daily to see whether these things are so. Uh, so to begin with, let's start with what many consider to be the foundation of Bible prophecy, uh, many call the backbone of biblical prophecy, and that's Daniel's prophecy in, Nan in Daniel 9 24 to 27. And this is his prophecy of 70 weeks, and we have that listed for you on the, on the handout. Uh, what did he mean by 70 weeks? Uh, if we read, uh, read that passage, 70 weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end to sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. Uh, so the Hebrew word there for, for 70 is Shabuah, or for seven, meaning sevens, or a period of seven. So what we see is God's program would be consummated in the 70 sevens. Uh, since Daniel had been thinking of God's program in terms of years, it makes sense for him to understand these sevens as years, as opposed to days or weeks, where there wouldn't be enough time to fulfill the prophecies that are listed in uh, Daniel 9. So the, the phrase 77 means a span of 490 years. So by the time those 490 years run their course, God will have completed six things for Israel that we see in Daniel 
the first three uh, have to do with, the, with sin. Uh, the last three having to do with the coming kingdom. Uh, so the first three, to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make an atonement for iniquity. Uh, the basis for all of those is Christ's death on the cross. And then the last three, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place, all of these will be realized at Christ's second coming. So these six accomplishments in verse 24 anticipate the establishment of Israel's covenant uh, millennial kingdom under the reign of the Lord Jesus. So continuing in Daniel 9, it says, You're to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So we see a specific time frame here of 69 weeks that was given from the issuing of a decree that was actually by Artaxerxes Longimus <laughs> to rebuild Jerusalem in 44 BC until the Messiah. Um, so what we're seeing here is a very specific timeline uh, from the time of that uh, decree to build, rebuild Jerusalem till the coming of Messiah. Uh, Bill MacDonald said about that a century ago in his book, The Coming Prince, Sir Robert Anderson gave detailed calculations of those 69 weeks using prophetic years. And what we mean by that, for the Jews, their calendar consisted of 30 days per month and 12 months or 360 days in a year. Uh, so that's what we consider a prophetic year. Allowing for leap years, errors in the calendar, and change from uh, B.C. to A.D., uh, he figured that the 69 weeks ended on the very day of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, five days before his death. Amazing accuracy that Daniel uh, predicted. So here's uh, a chart of that that's uh, in your handout. And then verse 26 says, After the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. Uh, according to Daniel 9.26, the Messiah was not cut off in the 70th seven. He was cut off after the seven and 62 sevens had run their course. This means there's an interval. There's an interval between the 69th and 70th sevens. Uh, that's when Christ's crucifixion occurred. That was the interval right after his triumphal en entry uh, which concluded the 69th sevens of weeks. Uh, so this interval was actually an anticipated by Christ when he prophesied the establishing of the church in Matthew 16. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So this necessitated the setting aside of the nation of Israel for a season in order that his new program for the church might be instituted. And actually, Christ referred to that when uh, talking with the Pharisees. Uh, in confronting the Jewish leaders, Christ predicted the setting aside of the nation of Israel in Matthew 21, 42, and 43. Uh, Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing 
the fruit of it. And that was a reference to the church. And so the present church age is that interval between the 69th and 70th sevens that you see on your chart there. Uh, the second part of uh, verse 26, it says, The people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end will come with the flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are determined. So who is this prince to come? It's not the Lord Jesus. It's another personality. Uh, the prince to come is the final head of a revived Roman Empire. In other words, the Antichrist. Uh, and it's, it's significant that the people of the prince, not the prince himself, will destroy Jerusalem and the sanctuary. The people of that ruler must be the Romans themselves. And actually we saw that in history. The Romans under Titus in AD 70, they came in and sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the city and as well as the temple uh, with all of its uh, stones and, and the gold uh, uh, decorations there was all uh, taken away or destroyed in AD 70. It says the end will come in with a flood. We know that the, the city was completely leveled as if by a flood. Not one stone of the temple remained upon another. We know the, the Roman soldiers torched the, the temple, resulting in the gold to, to be melted. It ended up seeping in between the stones, and the soldiers wanting to get to that gold dismembered the stones of the temple. Not one was left upon another. We know the invasion of Titus in 70 AD was a horrible thing for that city, but that didn't end the nation's sufferings. Uh, Gabriel said there will be war even to the end. Israel would continue to suffer until the prophecies of the 77s were completed. Going on to verse 27, and he, this is the prince who is to come, he will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Uh, this verse unveils what will occur in the 70th seven of years. Uh, the prince who will come, uh, the Antichrist, the little horn of uh, Daniel 7, 8. He's going to make a firm covenant that will mark the beginning of the seven-year period or the seven, uh, 70th week of Daniel. This covenant will be made with many, that is, with Daniel's people, the, nation's, the nation Israel. The covenant he will make will evidently be a peace covenant in which he will guarantee Israel's safety in the land. This ruler will pose as a prince of peace, and Israel will accept his authority. Um, but we're going to see in the middle of that covenant, in the middle of that 70th week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering, and on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Uh, so we're going to see later on in Revelation uh, that the Antichrist will gain worldwide political and religious power. Uh, he will be ruthless in uh, causing the world to worship him. And this is something we'll see later on in our study of Revelation. Uh, in order to gain that worship, he's going to put it in to organize religion. He will be uh, an abomination to the Jewish people, to the Jewish religion. He'll make desolate uh, their temple. So we know that's not the end. Uh, we, we see Daniel's prophecy ends 
here, it says, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So the demise of the Antichrist is prophesied by Daniel here. Uh, he says, even until complete destruction is poured out on him, we're going to see that happens when the Lord Jesus returns in uh, Revelation chapter 19. Uh, the Antichrist and, the, and his false prophet will be cast into the lake of fire at the second coming of our Lord. So that brings us to, to this amazing, awesome truth that Jesus Christ is coming again. This is a fundamental doctrine of our, our faith. So there's some various views of Christ's return in relationship to the millennium. And for any, um, <clears throat> for any Star Wars fans out there, when you hear the word millennium, let's don't be thinking of Han Solo's uh, Millennium Falcon. <laughs> uh, this is talking about the thousand-year period uh, between the time the Lord returns and, and sets up his kingdom and, and the eternal state. So there's basically three views. There's a premillennial, a postmillennial, and amillennial view. Uh, the premillennial view believes in a rapture, although there's different views on when that happens in, in a premillennial setting. Uh, there's a there is tribulation, there's Christ's second coming prior to the onset of that thousand-year reign of the Lord Jesus. Uh, there'll be a final judgment uh, following that millennium and then the eternal state. This is the view that we hold as, uh, as a chapel here at Hillview. It's the clearest, plainest reading of Revelation 19 and 20 where the Lord Jesus returns on a white horse and sets up his thousand-year reign. There's also a post-millennial view uh, that the <clears throat> views there's no rapture. The second coming occurs at the end of the millennial kingdom. Uh, Post-millennialists claim the kingdom is now being extended in the world through the preaching of the gospel Revival, spiritual awakening, and a gradual movement towards social perfection. Um, quick question, are we seeing social perfection <laughs> in our day right now? I don't think so. The world is not getting any better. It is getting worse and worse. The only cure for the world's problems is the return of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will reign in righteousness um, so this, is, this would be the, the post-millennial view. Then there's a amillennial view that believes there is no rapture and there's no future 1,000 reign of the, of the Lord Jesus on earth. Uh, he's, that view says that the kingdom of God is now present in the church. At the end of this present age, Christ returns in judgment of all men. There'll be a general resurrection. A final judgment takes place and a new heaven and a new earth are established. Uh, so basically, the eternal state begins with no intervening millennium. So again, uh, we believe strongly in a pre-millennial uh, and pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And so that brings us to uh, the topic of the rapture. When is that going to happen? What about the rapture? What do we mean by that? Uh, the key, a key passage for that is in 1 Thessalonians 4. 16 and 17. Uh, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the, in the clouds to meet the air, meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall also 
we will always be with the Lord. Um, so the word rapture is not something that we actually see in Scripture, uh, but there's several, there's several words like trinity or missions that are not seen in the, uh, in the Bible per se, but they certainly describe biblical truth. Uh, so the word rapture is from the Latin for caught up, uh, and in 1 Thessalonians, the Greek term is harpazo, meaning to seize, to carry off by force, to claim for oneself eagerly, to snatch out of the way. And that's certainly a good description of the, the rapture of the church. And so it's important for us, I think, to distinguish between the Lord's coming for his people, the rapture, and his second coming. And on your handout, I, I believe it's on... Um, Page three, you're going to see a, a whole list of distinctions between the rapture and the second coming. We don't have time to go over them now, but they're there for your further study. Basically, the Lord Jesus comes in the air in the rapture. In the second coming, he comes to the earth. In the rapture, he comes for his saints. In Revelation, he comes with his saints. We will be a part of that returning army clothed in white linen coming back with the Lord. So we recommend that for your further study. Um, there are three different, basically three different views of the rapture of the church. Uh, there's the pre-tribulation view, uh, a mid-trib, which has kind of been, it's been replaced by what's called a pre-wrath view, and then a post-tribulational view. Uh, so we want to kind of just take a brief look at what each of those mean, and then come to a decision on what we believe. Uh, so the post-tribulation rapture theory is that the church is, will continue on earth until the second coming of Christ at the end of the tribulation. Uh, so the rapture and the second coming of Christ take place at the same time. So basically what happens, the Lord Jesus comes down to, to re receive his church, then they're brought right back up again, and then back down. Uh, so it's a pretty dynamic situation there. Uh, uh, there's, there's problems with that uh, view. Uh, first of all, it's based on a denial of di what we call dispensationalism and dispensational distinctions. Uh, what do we mean by dispensationalism? Uh, Theopedia defines it as uh, teaching biblical history is best understood in light of a number of successive administration, administrations of God's dealings with mankind, which we would call dispensations or administrations or economies. And probably the, the simplest example of that in Scripture is in John 1.17, where the Lord Jesus said, the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. This was John's testimony about the difference between Moses, the lawgiver, uh, giving, uh, bringing a dispensation of law and the Lord Jesus bringing the dispensation of of grace, or the church age, which we thankfully are living under. We are no longer under law, we're living under grace. Uh, and so a problem with the post-tribulation rapture theory is it places the church in the time of Jacob's trouble that we see in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. So it's, it's basically denying a distinction between the church and Israel. Uh, it can also deny the distinction between the rapture and the second, second coming. 
Uh, denies the doctrine of eminence, something that we'll talk about in a bit. That, and this, the idea of eminence is the Lord could come at any time. And it applies major passages of Scripture that outline God's program for Israel uh, to the church. So this is a quick overview of the post-tribulation rapture theory. Uh, there's another theory, uh, the pre-wrath rapture theory, which sounds very similar, uh, pre-wrath, pre-tribulation, uh, and there are points of agreement with that. Uh, basically, the, the church is present for at least the first half of the seven-year tribulation. The rapture of the church occurs sometime after the midpoint, but not before the great tribulation. Uh, so there's areas of agreement with that. There's some things that we would disagree with. Um, the, the points of agreement is the, the, the pre-wrath rapture acknowledges there is a literal thousand-year millennium and a pre-millennial return of Christ to reign, uh, that the great tribulation will come before that millennium and the church will not experience the wrath of God. So the, this promise of a rapture doesn't mean that the church is exempt from, from suffering or trials or difficulties, sorrows. Uh, the Lord Jesus made that clear in John 16, 30, 33. Uh, he said, These things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you'll have tribulation, but take courage. I've overcome the world. And that's a promise that many of us cling to daily. So ba basically the difference between a, 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 the pre-wrath and a pre-tribulational view is the pre-tribulation view places the rapture before the coming seven years of tribulation or Daniel's 70th week. The pre-wrath view places the rapture of believers as occurring sometime during the middle of the tribulation. It concludes that believers of this present church age will experience the beginning years of the tribulation but be raptured before God pours out his wrath on the earth and thus the reason for the title a pre-wrath rapture. And here's kind of a, a diagram of that, of the pre-wrath view. And you can see the, the, the first five to six seals there that we're going to study next week. Dan will be covering that uh, in, in Revelation chapter 6. Uh, the pre-wrath view maintains that the church is going to experience those first five seals and perhaps even up to the sixth seal uh, in Revelation chapter 6, and then the rapture would occur after that. So um, some, some problems with the pre-wrath view. Much of the timing of the pre-wrath rapture relies heavily on the Olivet Discourse. And by that we mean uh, uh, Jesus' discussion with his disciples. The context of that, they were looking at the, the temple and, and the Lord said to them, your house is going to be left desolate to you. And he begins, they ask him, Lord, when will this happen? When will, when will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Uh, so this is a discussion that the Lord Jesus had with his disciples. And in Matthew 24, 15, Jesus says, When you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet. So here we are going back to, to Daniel 9, uh, 24 to 27. Standing in the holy place, this is referring to the temple, uh, Christ is making direct reference to Daniel's prophecy in nine, uh, Daniel 9, 24 to 27, that says, Seven weeks have been decreed for your people, 
that would be the Jews, and your holy city, Jerusalem. So the, the Olivet Discourse, uh, Bill McDonald maintains, points forward to the tribulation period and the Lord's second coming. The context is not the rapture. It's the second coming. It primarily, though not exclusively, concerns the nation of Israel. Obviously, other nations were gonna, are going to suffer the consequences of the tribulation. Its locale is obviously Palestine. Uh, for example, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Its setting is distinctly Jewish. For example, the Lord says, pray, pray that your flight may not be on the Sabbath. Well, Christians in this age are not under Mosaic law. We don't observe the Sabbath. Uh, so it's important for us to recognize the distinctions between Israel and the church. And um, again, uh, Jeremiah 30, talking about uh, the time of Jacob's trouble, is another reference to that being focused on the, the nation of Israel. Commentator Jim McClarty, not Jim McCarthy, McClarty, <laughs> commented on, on Matthew 24 on the Olivet Discourse. He said, when we piece this all together, we have the Lord Jesus, a Jewish Messiah, speaking to a Jewish audience about things predicted by Israel's prophets concerning the temple, the nation, the city, the Sabbath, and the Jews. There is no mention of the church in Matthew, uh, Matthew 24. There's neither the implication that Jesus was intending to include the church his, in his comments, but the, the pre-wrath position insists that Jesus' words in Matthew 24 are not exclusive to the Jews, that they do include the church. So it's important for us to recognize the distinctions between the church and Israel, and that also is listed in your, in your handout on the bottom of page three. Um, again, we, um, we don't have time to, to go through that now, but basically what we see is the governing principle for Israel is the Mosaic law. The governing principle for us uh, is, is the grace of the Lord Jesus. So that's something for further study uh, for, for, for time's sake. So continuing, in, in Matthew 24, verse 22, it says, Except those days should be shortened, there, sh there would be no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So a question here is, who are the elect? Uh, the the pre-wrath position is that the elect are the church. Um, and, and the idea there is that the church is going to be raptured, uh, ending their persecution by the Antichrist and Satan. They say the, door, the days are shortened because, the rapture, uh, because of the rapture occurring during the Great Tribulation. And, and so they're kind of focused on that, the, the idea of those days being shortened. But there's another way of looking at that phrase. Uh, the Bible, no Bible Knowledge Commentary says, uh, this is meant that there will be a termination of this period of time. It is not going to go on indefinitely. No one, no, one would, no one would survive, but the period will come to an end for the sake of the elect. And who are the elect? Uh, we would believe that the elect are the tribulation saints, those that are saved. There's going to be a tremendous outpouring of the preaching of the gospel, even during the days of the tribulation. Uh, we believe that there'll be many uh, saved during 
that time, both Jew and Gentile. Um, uh, Feinberg, a Bible scholar, says those to whom the Olivet Discourse was given would have understood the term elect in the context of the Old Testament. Why? Because the New Testament had not yet been given. Uh, so the church is not found in the prophecies or the parables of the Olivet Discourse. So that's one reason we'd have a, a, a problem with a pre-wrath view. Uh, secondly, uh, the pre-wrath view teaches that the seal judgments of Revelation 6 are the wrath of Satan or the Antichrist or man and not the judgment or wrath of God. And again, we're going to see what those seal judgments are next week. But I guess the question is, when we look at those judgments, who is the one that has the authority to unleash those on the world. And last week, Jim Callahan made it very clear to us who is the one that was worthy to open up the seven-sealed book. Revelation 5.3 states it clearly. No man, no man in heaven or, nor in the earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book or to look therein. So it's very clear that the one who is worthy to open those sealed judgments is none other than the Lord Jesus. And we see that repeated with each seal judgment. Starting in, in Revelation 6.1, it says, I saw the lamb broke one of the seven seals. Uh, Cooper Abrams says, it's the lamb himself who opens the first seal. It's the lamb who initiates the beginning of the seven years of tribulation. Further, Revelation 6.3 states that he, again, that's referring to the Lord Jesus, the lamb, the root, of Dave, uh, the root of the tribe of Judah is referring to the lamb in verse 1. So we see that in verses 3, 5, 7, 9, and 12 in Revelation chapter 6. It's the Lord Jesus that is opening each of those seals. Um, and, it, and chapter 6 of Revelation culminates in the sixth seal that causes men both great and small to hide in caves, to say to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us. Hide us from the presence of the Lamb who sits on the throne, from the Lamb, from the wrath of the Lamb of God. That's the way Revelation 6 ends. So the question is, we see these different seals in, in Revelation 6 and, and the activity of men, you know, causing war and the Antichrist being the, the rider on the white horse that begins that chapter. And we would agree, it is the Antichrist who persecutes God's people and all peoples of the earth, but he does so at the discretion of Jesus Christ. God will be using the Antichrist as the instrument of his wrath. And many times in biblical history, God uses the enemies of Israel to chastise and judge them. It is Almighty God who's using the seal judgments. This begins his plan to purge the earth of sin. Uh, so we should recognize that the seal judgments are the wrath of God. The pre-wrath position is refuted. Uh, the pre-wrath position teaches that the first five seals in Revelation 6 are not the wrath of the Lamb and that believers in the church will experience them. We would disagree with that position. So let's look at the pre-tribulation rapture theory. Um, this is one that we hold to at Hillview. Um, basically, the church is raptured prior to the seven years of tribulation. 
And I, I remember years ago, the first time I had a serious discussion about the, the, the rapture was back in dental school with my uh, lab mate, who was a very devout Christian, knew the word inside and out. And this is one of the passages he shared with me that really helped me understand what we consider a pre-tribulation uh, rapture. So in, in, in Revelation, sorry, in 1 Thessalonians 4, we see Paul describing the rapture, as we've seen earlier. But in, in 1, Thessalonians 5, 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul instructs the Thessalonians concerning the day of the Lord, which is an extended period, including the tribulation, the second coming, and the millennium. And if you look at verses 3 and 4 in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, it says, While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs on a woman with child. They shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. So notice the contrast. Uh, the, in verse 3, you see the pronouns they, them, and they. But in verse for you, brethren, with a uh, with the word "but," which is a, contra uh, a contrasting phrase, you are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. Why? You're all sons of light and sons of day. In verse five, and then in verse nine of chapter five, it says, "God has not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ." Um, so, some other passages that uh, speak of the pre-tribulation rapture. One of the strongest, I feel, is Revelation 3.10 that we just studied recently. It says, Because you've kept the word of my perseverance, this is addressed to the church at Philadelphia, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell upon the earth. So it's interesting, the, the Greek term for to keep you from is tereo ek, which means to keep out of to keep you from. Uh, Walford said, this is an explicit promise that the Philadelphia church will not endure the hour of trial, which is to unfold beginning in Revelation chapter 6. If Christ had meant to say that they would be preserved through a time of trouble or be taken out from within the tribulation, a different verb and a different preposition would have been required. Keeping the church through would use the, prep, the Greek preposition dia, a preposition which is not used here. So even though the church of Philadelphia would go to glory via death long before the time of trouble would come, if that church is taken to be typical of the body of Christ standing true to the, true to the faith, in other words, genuine believers, the promise seems to go beyond the Philadelphia church to all those who are believers in Christ. I think another uh, argument for the pre-tribulation rapture is that the church is mentioned multiple times. We've seen that so far in our series, especially the first three chapters of Revelation. But starting in Revelation 4, all the way to 19 uh, verse 7, the church age saints uh, are not mentioned. Uh, every reference to believers are those who are being saved during the tribulation. Then another passage that speaks of the, the, the rapture is 1 Corinthians 15, 51 and 52, where Paul tells the Corinthians, I tell you a mystery, 
We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. Boy, what a wonderful prospect uh, that is. <laughs> this, the, the rapture uh, is a mystery. Uh, that's, that's, that refers to a, a, a truth that was hidden and then revealed in the New Testament. Um, the twinkling of an eye speaks of the rapid occurrence of the rapture. It's going to happen in a split second. It was Paul's way of describing just how brief that event will be. It will happen at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise. Uh, that trumpet should not be confused with the trumpet that we see in Revelation 11. The trumpet in Revelation is uh, a, a trumpet announcing judgment whereas this trumpet announces the rapture. So, what do we make of all this? <laughs> the Lord could come for us at any moment. Uh, this anticipation and expectation is sometimes referred to as Christ's eminent return. And again, eminent is not a biblical word. It's a theological word that describes uh, an anticipation and expectation that the Lord Jesus could come at any Moment, And there's multiple verses in Scripture that exhort us to live in light of that any time return. Uh, Romans 13, 12, the night is almost gone, the day is near, therefore let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Uh, I appreciated what our brother Tim said earlier regarding his kids coming to the United States. Uh, there's a lot of physical attractions out there but they can be spiritually destructive uh, to our life. We, we are living in a time of spiritual and moral darkness. And the, the Lord tells us, lay aside those deeds, put on the armor of light, which we see described in Ephesians 6. We're in a battle, and we need the Lord's armor. Uh, Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for a savior the Lord Jesus Christ. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from a wrath to come. There's a wonderful promise there. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.17, uh, a verse we read earlier, we who are alive and remain shall be caught up to, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air Thus, we shall always be with the Lord. Interesting to notice, Paul included himself in that expectation. You can sense his anticipation that this could have happened even during his lifetime. James 5.8, You too be patient, strengthen your, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. There is another strong indication that this is eminent. It could happen at any time. 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. And often as we think about the end times and we, we may feel kind of helpless, uh, one of the best things we can do is to watch and pray. <laughs> watch and pray for the Lord's return. Um, and that's... Uh, that's the idea, too, of, of, of being sober and of sound judgment. Um, there's a lot of times when people begin to think about end times, 
that uh, emotions and passions can, can uh, take over and we lose God's perspective on what's going to be happening. And uh, so we don't want to turn into zealous fanatics who run off to the mountains and, and, and leave everything. Um, we want to be watchful, prayerful, uh, waiting for the Lord's return. 1 John 2.28, Now little children abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. And then our theme verse, Revelation 22.7, uh, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Um, so there's a tremendous blessing in heeding the prophecies, the warnings that the Lord gives to us uh, in this book. You know, God gave multitudes of signs to, uh, to Israel to stir them to expectancy. The fact is, no signs are given to us in regards to the rapture. Uh, the believer is watching for the Lord himself, uh, not signs that would precede his coming and start a countdown uh, to his return. I think one of the most comforting verses when we think of the end times is John 14, 1 to 3, where the Lord says, let not your heart be troubled. There's a lot of things that can trouble our hearts today. Uh, he said to believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. What a wonderful promise this is, something that we look forward to. So this verse is not describing his second coming. It's a very clear verse about the rapture. There's no mention here of, of the Lord coming in judgment. This is a distinct, separate event of him taking us to be with himself. And what are some of the things that are associated with that uh, coming for us? Um, uh, the, the Lord Jesus is going to return for us, for every genuine believer. Uh, we're going to receive glorified bodies. And the older I get, the more I look forward to that. Uh, this will be the ultimate makeover uh, that is out of this world. <laughs> we're going to get glorified bodies. That restrainer will be removed. Uh, believers are going to, we're going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ and that is not uh, having anything to do with, with sin. That was taken care of by the Lord. He paid the penalty of our sin. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. This is a time of review and reward for, ser for faithful service uh, to the Lord where crowns are promised to those who serve him. And then there'll be the marriage of the Lamb. And I think that is going to be the greatest re rendition of here comes the bride in the universe. <laughs> we are the bride of Christ. That day is coming when we will uh, participate in the marriage of the Lamb. And so uh, just to give a, a kind of an overview of what we talked about, uh, here's, here's a chart. Um, and in your handout, there's uh, uh, supporting verses for these different events. Uh, right now we're in the present church age. The next prophetic event to take place will be the rapture of the church, followed by the judgment seat of Christ, uh, the marriage of the Lamb. That will happen during that seven-year period of tribulation. 
At the end of that seven-year period, the Lord Jesus will return to reign and uh, judgment will occur of the nations. Uh, his millennial reign will begin for a thousand years. And at the end of that, Second uh, Peter 3 tells us that the heavens and the earth will be destroyed by fire. There'll be a great white throne judgment followed by a new heaven and a new earth. So uh, just to, to, to conclude, uh, what do we... What's our takeaway? I think in the midst of a, a chaotic and changing world, it's wonderful to know that Christ is coming back to take us to be with him forever. And I appreciated what John Nelson Darby said. He said, it's neither knowledge nor prophecy that can satisfy the heart, but the thought that Jesus is coming to take me to himself. And boy, what a wonderful prospect that is. Uh, may we live daily and serve him in light of that sure hope. Uh, being faithful to the one who said, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Uh, let's, uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord, we would, uh, we would say amen to that prayer. Uh, Lord, please come quickly. Uh, we await for your return with expectation and hope and the wonderful prospect of seeing you face to face, the one who loves us and gave himself for us. What a, what a wonderful time that'll be to, to be with you for all eternity and to praise and worship you around your throne. And we thank you, Lord, for that promise. We thank you for that prospect. In Jesus' name, amen.